Welcome to the Art of Dynamic Competence. I'm Susan Clark. Join me for a podcast where we explore how to best align ourselves with whatever situation we find ourselves in, allowing us to create success in changing times. Today, we're continuing with the second part of our summary of the first 13 podcasts. In our last episode, we focused on preparing to engage with dynamic competence. Now, Tom and I are going to talk about what goes into identifying problems and executing solutions. And we'll also review what our prior podcast speakers had to say about this. As we mentioned before, the goal of these summary discussions is to create a framework to help organize your listening of the coming podcasts, as well as a review of past podcasts. So Tom, welcome back. I really appreciate you joining me again to kind of dive into this second half of our summary that's really focusing on the execution of the problem solving. Tom, do you want to go back and talk a little bit about last episode and the preparation side of things? I think it's a good idea, Susan, to kind of recap the last episode. And and we can start with the definition of, of dynamic competence which is really the skills that let us cope with the unstable and dynamic situations to help us then create a positive and more importantly, a sustainable outcome. If you remember from that last podcast, we had two key elements, the preparation and the problem solving. And in that first one, we really got into the details of the preparation, which I think you and I both summarize as being that awareness component. And that awareness component had two parts to it. One, prepping the mind and body. That's really about the self, making sure you are ready to do the engagement. And then the other key component of the awareness was about seeing that environment. You have to create that safe environment, but just as important as the safety component, we also have to create the accountability component. Because that balance of safety and accountability allows us to then be able to delve into and find deep rooted issues and develop robust solutions to them in the next phase, which is called the problem solving phase. Perfect. That's a good summary. So today, what we're really going to focus on are these elements of problem identification and then solution implementation. So as we're focusing on how we execute, we've done our preparation, and now we want to look at execution. So Tom, do you want to give a high level kind of definition or description of what problem identification is and solution implementation is? Right. So if you think about it, you go into a problem identification with really trying to find what is the true root cause of it. And what do you mean by a true root cause? It is the ultimate starting point to where the problem has manifested from. And it's typically found as you work your way back upstream to then find the true initiating our headwaters of the issue. Great. And we may not always get to the ultimate root cause, but we're getting into something much deeper that allows us to come up with solutions that address why things are the way they are. There is a component of what you just said. You may not be able to get the true root cause, or you may not even be able to affect change at that level, but then somewhere downstream, you would then engage. Then let's talk a bit about this solution implementation. You want to try to give a definition or description of that? So I think there are some critical elements on the solution side. And one is you have to have the knowledge base and it may be within you. It may be within others. It may be 
be within the team, but you have to have the knowledge base of what you're dealing with, because if not, you're just going to miss so many things that are right there in front of you. And then you also have to look at what are the resources that are available to solve it. And I think another interesting component to this idea of using available resources is for a lot of people that you're working with who are having difficulty moving out of that instinctual reactive perspective and moving into a more intentional collaborative space, for them to understand that you're trying to use existing structures is actually comforting for them. You're kind of building that safety up for them, creating an environment where we're, as we say, we're not throwing the baby out with bathwater, which is a great way to pick up some of those folks who are still kind of hanging on to that instinctual reactive perspective. So really what you have now, Susan, is where you have to start drawing upon that preparation phase and the awareness phase. So one is you make sure you're stable and how you can move forward, but also the environment and the folks that are in there. And we really didn't talk about it much in that first podcast. We kind of steered away from it because it made things a little bit complicated. Mm-hmm. And now it's time to address the three phases of thinking. Yes, let's play a quotation from Mary May's podcast so we can kind of set this up. For our general purposes, we like to divide it into three basic levels. The first one is what we call reactive or instinctual traditional cognition. It's outer directed. We are given a map of the reality of the environment and community we are born into. The second level is intentional, and that's what begins to happen when new information comes in. We realize that not everybody has the same map as we do, so we have to start asking ourselves, which is the correct map? In other words, we're starting to have to think a little bit for ourselves. The third level is integral, which is called metacognitive or integrative. It happens when you begin to realize that all of the maps that you've been learning and working with are interesting, but level three thinking is an entirely different world. They begin to intuit new patterns that give them the sense that everything is connected. They must begin to open themselves to existence as it unfolds moment to moment in order to experience things that are yet undiscovered. Again, as we said before, to be able to really be effective, we have to learn to draw ourselves and others out of reactive phase, pull ourselves out of that and be in that intentional and that integral phase. Because if you think about it, the intentional phase was us being able to compare ourselves to new maps. That was important. And then if the problem is very difficult and solutions aren't very easy to come by, you then have to go in that integral phase, which you start to look in between the maps. So that's so important to understand those key components, have practiced it before so you can bring it forward into that problem identification and that solution development. Great, Tom. And I think that's a nice summary of looking at these phases, or I often call them perspectives, that we work from. And remember, these are not static phases or perspectives. We move up and down through them. And then it's that dance between those three perspectives, phases, where we are as a group defines how it is that we develop and identify solutions. Yep. Again, as we said before, this is where that preparation phase, you have to be very proficient in being both in yourself and in the group 
And those are the skills you're going to need to help you sit back and see where everybody is and then help lead them to that intentional and integral spot to be able to do the solution development. And what's so interesting, as we increase the complexity of the perspectives we look from, if we have problems where we need really intentional and and even integral perspectives, the personal preparation of the people who work with us goes way, way up. And that's such an important point. And that's why in this preparation phase, knowing where people are, are they coming from instinctual reactive? Are they coming from intentional collaborative? Or are they even working at that integral level? become so important to how we help them identify the problem, help them get to a certain level of understanding the problem, all depends on the perspective that you come from. Absolutely agree with you, Susan. I think that's why when we coined the phrase dynamic competency, we're now starting to really define what that dynamic situation looks like. Now you're starting to the engagement And you have to bring those skills forward and then use them while in practice to work with the team to help them come and see what are the problems, delving down to that root cause, and then ultimately working towards the solution development. Great, Tom. I think we're ready to really dive in now to identifying the problem and that process and what our podcast speakers had to say about it. I think one of the main concepts we need to bring forward in the problem identification is this concept, and I I laugh about this a lot because it really comes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. And the ultimate answer was 42. But the funny part about it is it wasn't about the answer. It was all about the question. And that's the same (laughs) aspect we need to take here because developing a solution on the wrong problem is worse than any of the major problems that you're having. So the idea here is that we have to be very clear that it's about identifying the root cause to make sure we are in the right place, seeing it for what it is, understanding what is happening, and then being able to move forward with the solution, but on truly the root cause. And I think what Carla Scheidlinger said and her podcast fits into that very nicely with this quotation. I think that over the years, I've come to really understand that there's a real purpose behind what it is that is happening. It's like my father used to call things a good reason and a real reason. And I look for the real reason, which is sometimes deeper and more complex or sometimes simpler. And I love this image of there's a good reason and a real reason. And what's so nice about that is we look at first simple processes, you know, problems that show up from this intentional reactive perspective. They are so gratifying to solve. There's always good reasons for it. You feel hungry, you're driving a car, you're optimizing a process. You kind of intuit what the problem is based on, based on your experience. You predict an outcome, you react and you watch the response. Anytime we're working on these kind of good reasons, simple reasons, it's always really gratifying. But what's important is you really have to follow Carla's prescription is often we have to go beyond the simple good reason and get into a real reason. And I think, Susan, the good reasons really are drawn from our reactive map. It's instinctual and it feels right. The reality is that we sometimes have to stop and go, wait a minute, just because it feels good 
it may not be right. We need to push ourselves to that intentional or integral space so that we can then look at it differently. And that's where a lot of the work that we've always done as consulting is help identify that. What we're talking about, as people start to see the signs themselves, you start to feel emotions are climbing both within you and your group. You start to see a lot of victim, rescue, aggressor game playing going on. You also see big decreases in productivity. And at that point, that's what's waking you up, right? It's waking you up from moving to just these good reasons to really getting deeper into the real reasons. But what's so interesting, Tom, is that the signs that we're talking about are also manifestations of the human side of the problem. They're helping us identify where humans are really causing part of the problems that are going on. Do you agree? And what did you hear in the podcast? Well, to, to kind of help summarize that, Susan, is that process solving is always the easier one. Working through the human element of that process, that's the hard part. We have some wonderful examples here about what are some of those human side problems? What do they look like? I think Newton Harrison said it well. He talked about people are not equipped to take up this type of material because they themselves are not ready for it. And that kind of flows right into Michael Hogan's comment that he says, we don't want the change. And because you're not ready to take up and you're pushing away from the change, it's hard to get them to engage then into problem solving. And I think part of it from what Michael was talking about, we saw it in Will Rogers, where he talked about we're conditioned to accept fundamental premises that may be wrong. So we've already accepted that these are real. We've accepted what is truth, but they may be wrong. And that's no different, Susan, than what Carla had said about the good reason and the real reason, because that good reason typically could be the wrong reason. And as we start thinking about how do we start getting people moving in that direction, we find that we have all these biases, right? We're accepting the premises that may be wrong, but we also may be drawing arbitrary lines that exclude important information. So these, again, are human components to missing what it is. I think Will took that to a whole nother level when he started to talk about often when we have these very deep, substantial problems, we feel superior. And when we feel superior, and in the case he was talking about, we feel superior to the earth, these become really critical elements to keeping us from looking at what the real reason is rather than just a good reason. Right. And then that just flows right into Newton Harrison then talking about we are greedy. I mean, it's this ego driven component. Michael Hogan said it himself, if you have the egotistical side to you, you are completely blinded. And that's really looking at the problem identification at the human level, at the individual level. And what we're doing is helping people shift from these instinctual reactive perspectives and phases that they're working from into more intentional and integral perspectives. What did you hear from our speakers about tools that they used to help them shift people to a new perspective. So I think some key elements that the speakers were bringing up to deal with those human problems were things such as you have to develop your mental fitness. I mean, Anthony Taylor said it well. 
going to take real mental fitness to allow ourselves to adapt, to have the mental toughness to deal with those, those changes and still see things through whatever that looks like, either on an individual level or a national or an international or a global level. And we're going to need the emotional intelligence to be able to support ourselves and each other through that. We're going to need the emotional intelligence to deal with the race issue. We're going to need the emotional intelligence to deal with the political issues that we've all got, to understand each other's points of view and opinions and try and find a workable way forward. Oh, I agree, Tom. I think that's a really important point and a great quotation for us. And I also think that something you said in Bethany's follow-up, emphasizing the need to find tolerance to address the problem. Do you want to talk about that? Well, if you think about it, Susan, so now you're in the situation where you are prepped and ready. You have now dropped into this team and you're working with them to work through the problems and you're starting to discover, wow, this really isn't about the process problem itself. It's really about all these mindsets that these people are bringing together that are coming to work with this and work through the problems. And as you said before, there are certain key elements that have to be there. The ability to have the tolerance within that situation to see it for what it is, not be sucked in to that reactional thinking, not be driven by those maps, but have that separation and be able to have the tolerance to be there allows you now to think clearly, to see it for what it is and be able to now engage the folks and help them get to both intentional and if needed, the integral mindsets. This really starts in that preparation side of it and then rolls into this identification so that we're preparing ourselves. And what we're really doing in our preparation is helping folks identify the human element of the problem. So once we've done that, right, we've gone through that process, we now can begin to address the actual process components. We're digging down and dealing with what are these very real deep problems, what I love Newton Harrison said, which are these ennobling problems. And I think it's a really important issue because ennobling problems, they are deep, they are significant and they rise up in very interesting ways when you bring a group of people together and allow them to communicate. And Susan, I think another key component to think about is that when I was in the military as a pilot and I was actually trained in accident investigations, and we actually had to do that a couple of times where we had to investigate. And, and what you discovered was it never was a single problem that occurred. What happens is it's typically a cascading of events that were typically like unforeseen or were low probability. But what happens is you have a cascading events that led to the ultimate failure or the issue that occurred. And I think a key component of that is that, well, if I have cascading issues that led to a problem, there really isn't one answer. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is there's actually a cascading of answers and solutions that need to be implemented. And I think we get locked into, well, I found all these problems. What's the solution? That's typically not the case. It's going to be multiple smaller solutions added in where needed to help then refine and eliminate the problems. And what's important to me as we talk about this art of dynamic competence is that as we become aware of this complexity, right? So complexity starts to arise. Organizations that are dealing with suddenly now see, as you just described, Tom, that there's a cascading series of events that are happening. 
And so it becomes overwhelming and it starts to slow things down. And I think Will said it really well when he talked about what he saw as a lot of the global issues that are arising now, the conflicts, the climate change, all of it coming together. And that Will expressed in his podcast that these large problems really will take too long to deal with because they seem so overwhelming. So it's this interesting piece of how do you get your people who are able to grab onto complexity in your organization and give them the space to do the processing, as you said, do the accident analysis. There are certain people who have that skill set who can go to that intentional and even integral space much easier and allow them to be able to get their arms around those larger problems so that you're not stuck, but you're able to keep things going really quickly. Do you agree, Tom? Yeah, because you're being aware, you're seeing your team, you then identify the skills that are on your team. And you understand that each person solves it in their own way. And what you do is you allow them that room to solve it. They're all going to get to the same place and they're all going to bring their own perspective. But in the end, it's all information that's drastically needed. And as a matter of fact, that diversity, we've talked about it multiple times before, that diversity actually breeds robust solutions. Well, Tom, it really starts when we we talk about what dynamic competence is about. Often it starts with somebody making a clarion call, a large clarion call. And we actually have that very significantly with Newton Harrison. When he said in his podcast, the life web is expelling us. And if we don't wake up, we're done for. And we're going to go back to a very primitive state by the time this works its way through. Why don't you talk a bit about the implication of what Newton started with that clarion call? I think the clarion calls, Susan, are truly the wake-up calls. It's put out there so people are shocked into awareness. They stop and they go, wow, holy cow, this is a big issue that's before us. But right after that occurs, my belief is, is that most people become quite worried. They become overwhelmed. I mean, that is a big subject. The life web of the earth is now expelling us. For most people, this would be overwhelming. But what Newton Harrison did is recognizing that he can't just go around holding up the sign, oh, we're all going to die. He had to find a way to connect to people. And what he's doing in his work is bringing in examples that are a little bit more aligned with what we would know and understand. And he's creating art to help convey the message, look what we're doing, look how we're impacting And by showing those problems, hopefully awakens people to then work on the solution. But it's not such an overwhelming problem that we just sit around going, oh, woe is me. I don't know if I can do this. And that's so exciting to me because what I hear you saying, Tom, is that we start with this big problem, this large ennobling problem. And then each one of us has to figure out how do we engage that and what perspective are we engaging it from? And I think what was so interesting, if we chunk all the way down, Lucas Mulliman did a fabulous job in his podcast talking about how social information is taken in and what we do with it. After social information, we could actually play around with the variance and the clustering. So you could get exactly the same mean if people were sort of moderately far away from your own opinion, or one individual is very close to your own opinion and two are very far away. And it turned out 
that this makes a huge difference for how much people are willing to change their mind or the extent to which people want to adjust their initial estimates. And what I like about this is Lucas is really calling out the limitations to working from this instinctual reactive perspective. In his research, he demonstrates that change can only happen in small increments and that we have to surround people with information that is only slightly different from their own maps. Absolutely agree with you, Susan. To do the expansion, we have so many great examples from the podcast of how you actually do that expansion, because that's the component that is yielding us a bigger return, is not taking people from a slight movement of their position of where they are, but really working on that expansion. So we work through creating common language, even though people solve things and do things differently, we work on a common language that kind of relates those together. So we're really watching the environment there and we're helping people figure out, look, I'm really good at this. Where can I invest my time and my energy into engaging this, right? And that whole feeling of being part of it and engaging is kind of that expansion component. You're able to then allow new concepts to listen to somebody else to kind of see how they're solving it. So all those pieces together are really helping us then expand our ability to see things and to move forward. And I think Bethany Crowley said it very well. At the personal level, we have to get to the space where we understand it's our responsibility to fix ourselves in order to fix the larger problem. Yeah. So coming off of that common language component, we really talk about what Newton Harrison had said about the currency that we use. Are we using the right currency? Is it a true motivator for what we're looking into? And I think what I liked about what Newton was doing, Anthony Taylor also did in his podcast, where he's taking familiar ideas, but connecting together in new ways. And so as we listen to these podcasts, you're starting to hear people talk about how they've taken familiar information and helped people see it in new ways, expanding their understanding of what's going on so they can help identify and grab onto whatever the problem is that they're facing. Coming off of that, Susan, what Michael Hogan talked about when he speaks of the ROI, which is the, the return on investment, it was about the alignment between what the regulators are doing and what the business was doing and then what the naturalists were doing and how you pull those together that we're now driving to a true solution that yields the end result that is both beneficial to all parties. And I do know, and knowing how Michael works, what he was able to do in talking about an ROI is begin to talk about two ROIs, a short-term return on investment, which is really the easiest solution, but often costs more in the long-term, and a longer-term return on investment that really is a reduced cost over the long-term and a much more sustainable solution. So having that language allows a greater number of people to see that very subtle distinction between the short-term costs and the long-term costs. Yeah. So then at that point, Susan, what this allows us to do with the team now set, the language established, we've now chunked down to what is truly what we can wrap our arms around and be able to move forward. Now we need to start talking about really the components that need to be there as we move forward with solution development. Oh, I agree, Tom. We're going to have to look at it as this interface, as Newton says, between the large scale and the small scale. The large scale, as we said, is the clarion call. The small scale is the implementation. 
So as Newton Harrison had said, to get our arms around it, what are those things we need to have? We, we, we must have some elements here. And Bethany speaks well of the individual level. We have to build a robust structure. And then to take that to the next step, we then see Michael Hogan saying that we have to create a space to be able to make mistakes. And that will allow us then to be less fearful, to feel safe. We have a strong infrastructure. We're feeling safe. And then that will flow right into then what Michael Hogan had said is about first principles. What are those fundamentals we must be seeing and considering? We, we really have to chunk down to the to those fundamentals. And then all those together then allow us to start understanding the details that are in front of us. So, Tom, what I hear in all of this is that we have a diverse group of people. They're all working from different perspectives. We're building a common language that allows them to communicate and talk about this and that we're diving deeper and deeper, both at the personal level, but getting into things like first principles and understanding details. And at that point, we're able to now move into a deeper knowledge, understanding the deeper knowledge behind it that allows us to create solutions. Do you agree? Yeah, this is the point, Susan, in which you have to bring knowledge forward. You can't solve problems. You can't identify the issues if you don't have the deep knowledge of the subject matter. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be the single expert. What you need is an array of people who have multiple different experiences, but in alignment with what you're trying to work on, that bring that knowledge skill together to help each other learn. As you dive down and look at it, you get a true understanding and a very well-represented understanding of what the problem is. Well, Tom, did you hear anything in our podcast regarding that perspective in terms of what our speakers talked about? I think a good component was from Michael Hogan that talked about, you know, you need to make sure you know the dogma, but you also need to make sure that you can ask the deeper questions and you have to continue to be able to ask the deeper question and actually come to an answer on that question because then that allows you then to move to the next one. If you can't answer it because you have limited knowledge, it really stifles how deep you can go. And I think there's a flip side of that as well. We heard from Fiona as well as from Bethany is that new paradigms arise from untrained folks. Remember Fiona had said she never would have developed thinking styles if she had gone to school first. She developed thinking styles very much intuitively. Then she went to school and got all of the background. So it's almost the same thing that Michael was talking about just backwards, which is you create the new idea and then you go make sure it fits in and understand how it fits in to the existing dogma. Correct. I think you have to be very careful here because you do need to bring the knowledge, but sometimes too much knowledge on the subject makes you blind. So then you have the other individual who may come in not knowing the subject well, but is learning it as they're going. And it's the balance of those two. It's the ability to see both sides and draw those together is where you have the greatest potential to truly finding that root cause or that what we like to call the ennobling problem. Right. And it's that integration. I agree. 
And I think Anthony Taylor from his podcast said it incredibly well when we talk about integration of perspectives, both inside and out. And his whole work is looking at mental fitness and seeing how emotional intelligence balances out mental toughness and then how mental health rounds it all out. That it's really all these integration of factors that have to come together. And Susan, I think what that leads us now to is with this structure and with this component of knowledge, we're now able to really dive deep into the system, the problem, what it is we're now working on. And we're able to then start identifying those components that aren't working. It could be cascading events. It could be a, a single entity. It can be lots of different things. But in the end, it's about do we have the knowledge to understand what parts aren't working? And that's where our true root cause problem resides. It's really interesting, Tom, because I think what Will Rogers said when he said that who we think we are is not who we really are, we learn that personally. But when you reach this point, when you're ready to really embrace the problem and move on to the solution, you realize that the problem you thought was there isn't what's really the problem. And once you've been able to identify that, now you can really roll into this solution generation. And so at this point, Susan, now it's really a about developing the sustainable solution. And we have to now talk through the elements and the parts that we need to have to really build that robust, sustainable solution. And I think a stepping point is where you look at Newton Harris, who says that the solution has to be larger than the problem you're actually working on. So if you take in consideration that cascading component we talked about of how the problems reside, it's about being able to develop a solution that's greater than all of those cascading elements to help build something that's sustainable. Right. And you've got to find the right people to do that work. And not only do you have to have the right people, they better have the right kind of tolerance to be grounded to both identify what that solution is and implement that solution. Right. Michael Hogan goes on to say that we may need a whole new vision, a whole new structure so that we can connect from the top down to the bottom up. This is where sustainability comes from. It's that linkage, the linkage between the leadership agreeing and the execution at the front line. And those two are coming together for full alignment. I agree completely. And I also like what Michael said about building the entire program around collaboration and learning. Yeah, that's a, a critical component because if you don't have the collaboration piece and you don't have the learning piece, you will not have sustainability. It's not like a one and done. No solution is just implemented and then it just happens to sustain itself. It's a life force of its own. And if it's not tended to like a garden, that solution will slowly dissipate and go away. And also, I think Fiona had a really great statement about this because she talked about creating this authentic leader tree. Being authentic is the tree. And then all sorts of leadership can hang off that tree. So if you've built this structure behind it, you can now hang every different kind of leadership you want onto it, and it still works well. Yeah. And then as we're building this through, we really then have to chunk down and make sure that we focus on what Michael Hogan said were first principles. Right. And again, I go back to Fiona, and I think it was really interesting in my conversation with her that as you're in this process, you use existing hierarchies, existing structure when it's useful. 
And when you're not, and when it doesn't work, you go back to authentic leadership that allows you to implement new solutions in ways that haven't been done before. Right. And I think Michael Hogan ends up summing it up well. He talks about the solution must have the accountability. It must have the incentive. It must have the first principle. It must have the collaboration component. And it has to have the ability to allow you to fail and to be able to then pick up and continue on. And ultimately, you have to own the outcome of whatever comes from it. Tom, I agree with you completely on that. I think Michael characterized it really well. This is not easy work. This is challenging work. This is where we've made most of our money, helping people go through this. And we wanted to share this with folks to give them a sense of what it is that you're trying to accomplish and what are the different elements that our speakers have talked about regarding identification of problems and implementation of solutions. Yeah, Susan, again, this is not easy and it is a challenge, but through this process, it's about can I get prepared for it? Can I build my own awareness? Do I know where my own body is? And can I engage the environment? And that preparation then allows you to get into what we would consider highly dynamic situations. And that ability to bring those skills forward, to drop into that problem identification and that sustainable solution development, those are the elements that we're trying to convey here. And again, it takes work and it does take practice. But there are some good skills that we mentioned through our podcast and with our speakers that have helped us have a better insight of what those things are and what they look like and how we can deploy them. And now moving forward in future podcasts, we're going to use the structure of these two summary podcasts so that you now have a background in what's going on and we'll refer back to the elements And so I'm looking forward now, Tom, to this kind of second season of podcasts coming because we'll be able to link what the speakers are saying to these two summary podcasts. Right. I think for our listeners to have that fundamental knowledge now of what really is dynamic competence and then to actually see it in play as we work through these different speakers, I think it's going to be fun to do. Thanks so much. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Susan. Appreciate it. We want to share a heartfelt thanks for all who have joined us for this episode of The Art of Dynamic Competence. We're incredibly grateful that you shared some of your day with us. We know your time is precious, and we hope that we've been able to share some interesting perspectives and helped you gain some insight in how you've used dynamic competence before in your own life and how to find it in new things you're taking on. We've now launched our social media at The Art of Dynamic Competence or AO Die Competence on Twitter. So please follow us on your favorite platform. In the meantime, and if you're intrigued with what you've heard, please subscribe to this podcast and please tell colleagues, friends, and family about us. This is Susan Clark for The Art of Dynamic Competence. Thank you so much for listening.